Welcome, oh happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. This is not a show for crooks and creeps, or clowns and cranks. No, it's not a show for tennis balls who just float down the gutter of life. No, it's a show for happy warriors who want to understand how the world really works, and for happy warriors who want to build their lives by improving their five Fs, by developing their families and their finances, their fitness and their friendship and their faith, all of those integrated together in one fulfilling and happy life. And to all of you, happy warriors, I say welcome and thanks for being part of the Rabbi Daniel app. Oh, and hey, thank you. Those of you who listen to the show on YouTube, well, uh, thank you so much. You have pushed the subscriber base to over 50,000 subscribers. Yes, we just passed that milestone. Thanks to you. So I very much appreciate it, and uh, if any of you have not yet subscribed, and that's not just on, on YouTube, it's whatever platform you're on, but uh, if you would be so kind as to go ahead and subscribe, that would be terrific, and uh, let's head towards 60,000. Let's see, how long is it going to take us to get 60,000 active subscribers to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show on YouTube? We're also, we're doing great on iTunes. We're also doing great on Ghana, which is uh, heard mostly in India. We've got a lot of people listening in India. And uh, we've got a lot of people listening in Canada as well, which is great. So uh, here's a starting off question for us for today's show, Happy Warriors. And that is, what is actually the appeal of liberalism? What is it? that draws people to reject the free market financial model and to embrace the Marxist model? What is it that makes people feel drawn to wokeism? And uh, why is it so important for some people to imperil a valuable brand like Bud Light by catering to a tiny community of people who think that men can turn into women. Why? What is, what is the appeal? What's, what's drawing everybody? Well, let me try and explain it. Liberalism, hear the word liberalism. It literally means being liberated. Liberated from what? Well, initially it's from the Judeo-Christian Bible-based belief system. That's what liberalism liberates you from. And, uh, and people love that. People think that uh, it's sophisticated and makes them sound intelligent and makes them removed from the primitivism of religious belief. It makes them feel good. They have managed to persuade themselves that religious belief is tribalistic and ancient and primitive and so by rejecting it, and that's what liberalism is, 
Um, take Judaism, for example. The liberal branches of Judaism are what? Conservative Judaism and Reform Judaism. Uh, as organizations, they are in decline. But their appeal is a more liberal perspective on Judaism. And so, sure enough, uh, you can find quite easily that whereas Orthodox Judaism requires adherence to the five books of Moses and adherence to the codes of Jewish law, the five books of Moses requires that uh, every seventh day on Shabbat from Friday night until Saturday night, we don't run our computers, we don't use our telephones, we don't drive our cars. The liberal branches of Judaism, conservative Judaism, reform Judaism, reconstructionist Judaism, and who knows how many others, they have liberated their members from these constraints of religious restriction. And uh, so those things don't apply in the more liberated versions of Judaism. That's what liberalism is at its heart all about. And that's, by the way, exactly why liberalism or progressivism or socialism or communism, please understand, these are all exactly the same. They differ only in degree. But these things, whether it's progressivism or communism or socialism or liberalism, where did they develop? Only in Judeo-Christian Bible-based countries. That's where they came from. They never emerged or developed in Africa or Asia. Oh, they took root in those places. Okay, no question about it. Because liberalism or communism or socialism offers so many benefits to those who wish to rule in tyranny. But... Um, for it to emerge indigenously, for liberalism or socialism to emerge indigenously, no, only in Judeo-Christian Bible-based societies, because you've got to have something to push against, right? And so the, uh, the idea that people are using liberalism to liberate themselves from the constraints of Judeo-Christian belief well, obviously, that's not going to have much of a selling feature in countries that do not have that in the first place. So, not surprisingly, we saw it in France during the last decades of the 18th century. And what was the paramount target of the vitriolic hatred of the revolutionaries who were socialist or communist or liberal, whatever you want to call them? Well, of course, the church. The church was the primary target of the French Revolution. We saw it in Russia during the first decades of the 20th century, and the primary targets of hatred, well, they were the Russian Orthodox Church, of course, and naturally also the Jews, even though many had themselves, many Jews had themselves become Bolsheviks. Didn't help them. And uh, as it began to emerge in America in the 1960s, liberalism, progressivism, 
Not for the first time, of course, it had been seen in America before, but it was the first time that it captured the hearts of young people on a large scale. Young people who started by taking over the universities, a process of transformation that has been happening relentlessly for 60 years and continues with unabated ferocity. Part of its initial appeal is shunting aside sexual standards of behavior. Join us and you will get to sleep with your girlfriend without marrying her. That's almost irresistible. That was the message on campuses in the United States and in England and in France and in Germany and many other places during the 1960s. It goes back a very long time. Uh, for those of you who are interested, and I hope if you are interested, I hope you have a Rabbi Daniel Lappin recommended Bible, and if you don't, you'll find that on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Just go to the store and uh, get yourself a copy of my recommended Bible. Uh, and if you have that clutched eagerly in your hands right now, you'll turn to Numbers chapter 11, verse 10. And what we're talking about in Numbers chapter 11, verse 10, is uh, Israel crying. The Hebrew verse reads as follows, Vayishma Moshe et ha'am lemishpechotav. And Moses heard the nation crying for their families. Why are they crying for their families? Well, you've got to remember what's happened. Uh, in the context of the, of the discussion, they've just received the Torah on Mount Sinai, even though that actually happens in the book of Exodus, but it's being discussed here. And um, among the many rules that are provided in the five books of Moses are several chapters of prohibited sexual activities. And so, uh, you know, I thought that uh, I could, you know, there I am, a, uh, uh, an, an eager 19-year-old who at a family gathering meets my father's younger sister. Turns out, um, you know, that my father is 40, but he's got a younger sister who's 20. And... Uh, I meet her at a family gathering. Oh, boy, this is great. Beautiful young woman. We have a family connection. We, uh, we have the same last name. And um, I want to take her for a stroll down to the woods near the river. And all of a sudden, I remember Leviticus. And I see chapter Leviticus 18, 19, 20. And there, not once but twice, I'm told that I cannot have a relationship, an intimate relationship with my aunt. Well, that's a bit disappointing. That's wrecked an entire afternoon plan. That's terrible. You can understand why it is that when the Torah was given and the Israelites read it, they cried about their families. Now, what is this bit about families? Well, uh, family 
is just another way, think of it almost as a euphemistic way to speak of sexual relations. Why? Well, because family is the product of sexual relationships. It may be a little bit awkward to contemplate, but you've got to remember that when you're at a family gathering and, uh, you know, you're with your brothers and sisters and everyone's having a good time and your cousins are there and your aunts and your uncles are there and you're all having a wonderful family time, remember that all of this only happened because a long time ago, grandpa and grandma found ecstasy in one another's arms. And then after that, your parents did the same. So you have brothers and sisters. And so although we don't think of it that way, the existence of family is uh, its a beautiful tribute to physical intimacy that God put into the world as a reward for obeying his injunction of not good for man to be alone. Now, I just must issue the following caveat, which is that I am not uh, ignorant of evolutionary biology, and I know full well that almost everything for which I give a Bible-based explanation can be explained in terms of evolutionary biology. Not everything, by the way, but most things. And so uh, if you prefer the approach of evolutionary biology, which, by the way, is completely um, incompatible with a biblical approach, you've got to decide which way you go. And it's a decision that carries very significant consequences in its wake. But uh, you would say, well, family is simply because sexual attraction arose as a means of propagating the species, and those species that didn't have sexual attraction vanished off the face of the earth because sexual attraction is obviously an advantage for uh, evolutionary progress and for natural selection. And so uh, you know why there's a lovely family barbecue and why everyone is together three generations, four generations of the family grandparents are there and their children are there and uh, and the uh, grandchildren are there and there's one or two grandchildren that have got married and have a baby. So there you've got four generations, you know, over a period of perhaps 75 years, right? Typically a generation about 25 years. So grandparents say 75, just for argument's sake, their children, you know, roughly 50. The grandchildren might be 25 and so some of them may have little babies. So there you go. And evolutionary biology will say, see, that's a proof of the effectiveness of um, simply physical attraction. But uh, uh, the, um, the Bible approach is that it is part of, of God's kindness in um, trying to encourage us and perhaps even more than encourage, incentivize us to connect with one another. And uh, God gave us in that second chapter of Genesis, God gave us two ways to connect, sexually and economically. Um, one way is referred to as family. The other way is referred to as bread. 
And indeed, uh, this has become a part of Western thinking in the sense that uh, people often use the word bread as a slang term for money. Or sometimes they say, can you lend me some dough? Right, dough or bread, it's all part of it. And so uh, one way that it's immensely rewarding to connect with another human being is through the wonderful world of financial transactions where we both emerge at the end of the transaction happier than we were before. I am thrilled that I was able to purchase a Smith & Wesson um, revolver from you, and you are thrilled that you sold off some of your inventory, and now you have money. And we both smile at each other happily as we ruminate on the beauty of free market transactions that makes both parties happier than they were before. And likewise, the sexual relationship, once again, uh, brings joy to both partners. And, And what is more, both partners feel joy at being able to bring joy to the other. What could be more godly? What could be better? And so uh, that would be the the biblical approach. And so the word family, it's not synonymous with physical intimacy, but it uh, strongly hints at it uh, because we recognize that family is only there because of physical intimacy between mother and father and between grandpa and grandma. And as a result of that, hey, here we all are. What a great time we're having. And so back to the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verse 10. And Moses heard the people crying regarding families. Why are they crying about their families? No, they're crying about the restrictions on the activity that produces families. And... um, and that, that desire to be liberated from all sexual restraint is very compelling and very strong. And that lies at the heart of liberalism. And uh, it's, it's one of the reasons that the free speech movement uh, corresponded to the so-called free love movement. And in the 60s and 70s, there were love-ins and sit-ins, and lie-ins, and uh, all kinds of things happened. You know, why so much at the university level? Well, partially because university students have too little to do. Now, (laughs) um, you know, if if you're a hardworking university student, God bless you, and I'm happy to hear it. My bet is you probably, uh, at a professional school, maybe you're um, working towards a nursing degree or a uh, degree in computer programming. But if you're in the liberal arts or if you're studying, God help us, gender studies or racial studies or colonial studies and imperial studies and the and comparative art and comparative literature, if you're studying all of that, I'm telling you right now, you've got a lot of time on your hands and you'd be a fool not to use it productively. Well, there were plenty fools, and uh, and so it was on the university campuses that liberalism found its most fertile ground. And uh, uh, the 1960s were uh, a turbulent decade, both in, in basically throughout the Judeo-Christian world. 
Okay, that's what's happening. That was what was going on, and uh, and that's not. It's not just a an embrace of a system that utterly obliterates all restrictions on sex. It's all, liberalism is also a protest against the fixed nature of life. Now, I hope I'm not going to lose you here because I always worry about that, you know, because uh, I'm going to be telling you something that is going to uh, stimulate a surge of cognitive dissonance. You're going to shake your head in indignation and probably react with some anger at your rabbi, but that's okay. I've got broad shoulders. I can take it. Uh, because I'm going to tell you something you're not going to want to hear. And that is the fixed nature of life. Unlike the, what your preschool teacher told you, that you can be anything you like, it's kind of not true. It's a bit of a lie. Let me explain what I mean. For a start, right from day one, you are born as a human being, either male or female. That's one. You are one of those things. You do not have limitless choice. Right there from day one, much is already settled. Hello, born a male? You will largely circulate aimlessly and destructively, trying to still that urgent craving in you. You know, that can only be fulfilled by a connection with a woman who gives you far more than a soothing spasm in the spinal column. A woman who actually gives you a lasting, timeless connection to the future. That's all that stills the craving of being a male. You're born as a female. You're, you're pretty much okay till puberty. But thereafter, you begin to crave a baby. And... That baby that you want so badly can be given to you only by that infuriating creature called a male, who, unless he is a knight rather than a knave, he'll bring you so much pain that you begin to convince yourself that you don't even really want a baby, and probably, when it comes to it, you probably don't even really want a man. That's right. I do believe that the wonderful world of lesbianism was basically created by horrible men. I really do. That's, that's what it is. Uh, women came to see. It's just too painful to associate with horrible men. And once upon a time, you could easily avoid horrible men because your parents and your family and your social circle and your school and your teachers, everybody was steering you to upright, decent guys. But there's so many, so many fewer of them today, you see. And uh, understandably, many young women say, <laughs> there, aren't any, there are no great guys around. Who needs them? And uh, they find closeness and warmth and friendship and even love with another woman. You know what? I get it. But above all, in liberalism, there is this driving force 
to reject Genesis. Back to your Bible, please. Reject Genesis. <laughs> how about those of you who are not into the Bible? Like, how, how do you react when I mention the Bible? I really hope the way you react is not with indignation and anger, but I really hope you react by saying, hey, you know what, I'm not, I'm not into this myself, but I do recognize it as uh, the book that more than any other has shaped Western civilization. And so I should at least be aware of what is found within its pages, even if I don't have a deep visceral connection with those words. That's what I hope you say. So, uh, but at any rate, you should, I mean, obviously you should own a Bible. There's no question about that. That's just one of the books that you should own. And so uh, I say, no, um, as, 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 as a liberal, you have to reject Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. You know what's written there? I'll give you a second to look it up. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. That's right. Male and female he created them. That's what's written there. And so obviously that must be rejected because if the heart of liberalism is the rejection of biblical belief and an utter obliteration of the timeless truths of Judeo-Christian thinking, then you have to reject male and female he created them. Well, if he didn't create them male and female, then first of all, nobody did any creating. They emerged uh, indigenously by a lengthy, unaided process of um, biological evolution through natural selection. And they didn't actually evolve into male and female. They evolved into a spectrum, a non-binary spectrum, obviously, because we're starting off with the rejection of Genesis one twenty-seven. So obviously, we must believe in the opposite. That is the heart of liberalism. Reject the divine directive, telling you that it will all only work out for you in your life, you man, if you forego all other women, devoting yourself exclusively to one woman with whom you raise a home and a family. I really understand how hard that is to hear. You know, you're a 22-year-old guy and you've just started making a few dollars. You've got a job and you've got friends and, and you can, you've got a bit of discretionary income. And uh, along comes Rabbi Daniel Lappin who says, now it's time to start seeking a bride. And you say, are you stock staring bonkers? Are you a raving lunatic? That's the last thing I want now. Do you really think I want to be tied down by a one woman? Why would I want that? The world is open to me. And I get it because you have been persuaded that there are many successful ways to live a life and that all are equally effective and all produce equivalent happiness and uh, stay out of my face because I will make my own choices to what sort of life I will live. And the tragedy is that by the time it becomes evident, it's a little bit too late. You're a woman, fine. Your purpose in the modernist liberal project is to reject, by the way, you know that everything I'm telling you, it was written by Marx, 
So I'm I'm not being terribly clever or original. Uh, I'm just telling you exactly how the left thinks. Reject the divine directive telling you to be a woman and to become a wife and a mother. Resist the cursed call to try and be a man. Uh, a young woman is told from kindergarten onwards, she's told literally from the time she's a tiny little girl, you don't have to be a, a wife, you don't have to be a mother, the, the world is open to you because your mother and your grandmother fought for feminist principles, you can become whatever you like. And notice that in all these narratives, the becoming whatever you like is always a corporate president or an international lawyer. It's never a supermarket clerk. But that's kind of where most working women end up. Not necessarily in the supermarket, but, you know, tough, difficult, blood-draining, life-sucking, menial jobs. These are all clarion calls to socialism, happy warriors. And, and you should be aware of it because you are subject to these calls. Your family members are. Maybe you've got children. Maybe you've got siblings. Your friends are subject to these calls that are so loud and so insistent the calls are to a world in which you are told, oh, anything is possible. Look, I don't want to make you miserable, but there's a certain joy in understanding how the world really works. And in the real world, not everything is possible. If you have testicles, you cannot ever be a mommy. If you have ovaries, you cannot ever be a daddy. This is hurtful. I get it. I hate limitations. One of the things that makes it hard for men to keep schedules is because the schedule is something that tells you you can't do everything. As long as you don't write down in a calendar and you don't make a schedule, inside your heart you're saying to yourself, hey, I can do everything. And you never end up doing everything. You're always running, trying to put out fires. Because writing down a schedule and plugging jobs and activities into a calendar proves to you that not only can you not do everything, but you have to carefully select the things you will forego in order to allow yourself to do other things that you choose to do instead. It's hurtful. I get it. I really, really do. I also would like a world where I could be a pirate and an orchestra conductor, a world in which I could acquire whatever I wanted in the company of many different women. I, You know, it's hard to know for sure, but had this been promised to me in my gullible and vulnerable, vulner, what did I say, vulnerable, vulnerable, had, I, had any of this been, all of this been promised to me, you know, when I was gullible and vulnerable in my late teens and early 20s, I might have found it very appealing. But fortunately, I had parents who helped me understand that you have to choose. You're living in a real world, and the real world has limitations. In the real world, make no mistake, you can achieve much 
As a matter of fact, we can all achieve much more than we are achieving. I, I say that without reservation. We can all achieve ever so much more than we are achieving. But it's all within certain broad parameters. Not anything and not everything. You can achieve a lot, but it's within certain broad parameters. It's not anything and it's not everything. In the same way that I cannot have everything, or for that matter, anything, not everything works as well as everything else, right? What am, what am I talking about? Well, I want you to try and understand this. But uh, first, let me ask you to please, if you haven't yet become a member of our Happy Warrior community, uh, please go ahead and do that. You can go to the website wehappywarriors.com, wehappywarriors.com. That's all of us. And uh, join our community. And uh, I'd love for you to do that. It, it strengthens me. And in the same way, I will strengthen you. Uh, each and every one of us, each happy warrior is trying to improve his and her life. And we know how to do it. We know that we have to strengthen our families and our faiths, our finances and our fitness and our friendships. We get all that. But the devil is in the details. And the challenge is in the self-discipline and the focus. And all of these things are made ever so much easier when you can go online to the Happy Warrior community when you are a member and... Uh, and embrace other people, many of whom have already gone through the boundaries you are facing, and they help you break through those boundaries. And hey, guess what? Here's somebody else who you are able to inspire, and you are able to encourage to move forward to the plateau upon which you already comfortably rest. The Happy Warriors community is really it's it's one of the, the, the best things I've ever been involved in, and uh, it means a great deal to me. So go ahead to uh, wehappywarriors.com and uh, join the Happy Warriors community. Uh, you, can also, you can also get there through the rabbidaniellappin.com website, rabbidaniellappin.com website. And you know what else you can do at rabbidaniellappin.com? rabbidaniellappin.com. You know what else you can do there? Uh, you can um, get yourself access to a Bible training tool called Scrolling Through Scripture, and I'd recommend Unit One. You, I think you can actually, I think you can access um, one lesson just right there for free. Just go ahead and listen to it. The reason I suggest this is because uh, there is more misperception and confusion about this most important book than about any other book in the history of humanity. Uh, part of the problem is the problem of translation. It Look, let me just tell you flat out simple. It is impossible to accurately translate anything because the connection between language, values, philosophies uh, is almost unbreakable. And, and, you know, I, I should tell you that um, it's talking about evolutionary biology. And I remember I said evolutionary biology can explain a lot of the things, but only the Bible explains everything. 
And uh, one of the things that evolutionary biology fails to explain, and by the way, you know, don't take my word for it. Uh, you can take the word of eminent scholars, even hostile to religion, secular, atheistic Jews like Noam Chomsky. And he will tell you that at the moment, with all the research, all the investigations, um, etymologists and linguists and language researchers have no understanding at all of how communication and language became part of the human toolbox. And it's, it's a fundamentally important part of the human toolbox because, uh, you know, humans domesticate big animals. In Thailand, humans domesticate elephants. But around the world, we, you know, a, uh, a 120-pound farm wife might be taking care of a 2,000-pound cow, you know. But how come there's nowhere in the world where we find that animals have domesticated humans? <laughs> I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's just because we're so accustomed to the reverse that we don't even ask the question. And the real answer is that humans have language. And so this means that unlike a cow or a cat or a camel or a kangaroo, each of which has to operate on instinct and each of which gets born into the world with certain inborn instincts and in many cases the, the cat has to learn how to catch a mouse and the duckling has to learn how to swim and the little bird has to learn how to fly. Uh, in our case, you see, I didn't have to go through all the work of 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century science. I didn't have to figure out gravity and I didn't have to figure out how to build a car and I didn't have to figure out about magnetism and electricity. It was all there in books. It was communicated to me by language from earlier generations. So I was able to climb onto their shoulders and reach even higher. Right? That's all the beauty of language. And uh, Noam Chomsky and other uh, secular scientists will tell you they cannot see where language evolved. There is no early stage of language. All of it, it says if one day there was nothing and the next day there was language. Well, that fits the biblical model perfectly as it happens, but who cares? That's irrelevant. I mean, that's just something that entertains me. But the bottom line is, that language at the moment from a non-religious perspective, language is inexplicable. Scientists believe that they have found various fossils or they will find missing fossils that show a steady progress. Well, the fact remains that, as I think anyone who's looked into uh, the the whole wonderful world of Darwinian evolution. No, actually, I would really like to give credit not to Darwin, but to Wallace, because what you may not all know is that Darwin kind of pretty much stole it from Wallace. Um, Wallace was a, a young man without these lofty social connections enjoyed by Darwin. And uh, Wallace was uh, off in Indonesia somewhere doing some research and he wrote back to Darwin a 20-page uh, letter with the whole theory of natural selection. And uh, Darwin basically 
Well, yeah. Darwin had been working on it as well, but he hadn't written a thing. And uh, he basically raced ahead and claimed the credit from Wallace. Not a nice thing to do. Uh, not a nice thing at all. And um, But at any rate, uh, so Darwinian evolutionists um, are working towards finding the missing links. They're working towards finding a continuous fossil trail from primitive oceanic invertebrates all the way to thoroughbred horses and uh, chimpanzees and humans. And they're still trying to do it. But they really believe that they will. The trouble is that nobody anymore believes that they will find any evolutionary evidence of language development. It wasn't there, and then it was there. Well, that's okay, because as I point out in, and I, I lay this out very clearly in, um, in scrolling through scripture, I show you how the words, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Early in the book of Genesis, God created man and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And I show you how that actually translates to giving humans the gift of speech. That's quite right. One day it wasn't there and the next day it was. What was the human being before speech was imparted to him? Something not human, because speech is largely what makes humans humans. That, of course, and our souls. So uh, I um, wanted you to, uh, to grasp that and, uh, and understand exactly how it is that uh, that, that all works. And... Um, you may, as I say, go to rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, take a look at the free example. There's a, I think there's a free, beautiful lesson in scrolling through Scripture because uh, you really, I think, if you haven't yet, you would like to get an insight into how wrong the translations are and what can be revealed to you if you are exposed in the correct way to the wonders and the amazing facts found in the original Hebrew. And that's what I show you in Scrolling Through Scripture, Unit 1. So go to rabbidaniellappin.com, www.rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, enjoy it. You'll love it. And so one of the things that we see is that... Um, uh, not everything works as well as everything else. By the way, I, some of you know this already, but here's how my father taught me that principle when I was a kid. Uh, then, as now, I enjoy things mechanical. Um, I just spent a lovely afternoon this week talking to a nuclear engineer, and we were both getting rhapsodic about uh, nuclear uh, energy and the many nuclear power stations that America has stupidly decommissioned uh, and the way they worked in producing the heat, which produced steam that drove the turbine, that drove a generator on the same shaft, and how the generators were hydrogen-cooled. Bet you didn't know about that. I know I didn't. Anyways, uh, I love things mechanical, and my father used to occasionally give me a broken a mechanical clock. You remember those clocks? You'd wind them up. Sometimes they had a different winder for the alarm. Uh, 
And then as the alarm rang, it, it, it wound down. So when you set yourself an alarm, you not only had to make sure you were on the clock, you also had to wind up the uh, alarm section. Anyway, these mechanical clocks had a mainspring and an escapement movement. Fascinating stuff. I mean, and it's all, you know, relatively old technology, but quite brilliant. And I used to take these apart and try and put them together. And um, the, the bottom line message was there are many different ways of taking apart a mechanical clock. And there's a lot of ways of putting it back together, but only one works. By the time you take the springs and the little cog wheels and the escapement mechanisms and you start trying to put them all together, yeah, you can get them together in different ways, but the only way the clock is going to work is one out of the many ways. So I think it's important to know that because there's not a lot of ways to live your life successfully and happily. There really aren't. And, um, you know, if, if you are uh, 60 years old and listening to this, then I hope and pray that you've done well so far. But if you haven't, it's very late. It's very late. If you are 20 years old, you have been told by evil people. Yes, I'm, they are evil people. You've been told by evil people. Well, people with evil ideas, okay, maybe that way. You've been told by people with evil ideas that there's all kinds of things you can do ahead of you. And the truth is, yes, but only one works. We're not all that unique. We really aren't. We're pretty much alike one another. No matter what our skin color, no matter what country or continent we came from, if we're a human being, we all need the same basic five Fs to succeed for all of us. That's what we need. Each and every one of us needs family and friends. We need physical fitness and natural health, and we need finances. And although most of us don't necessarily know it automatically, we also need faith. Now, you know, why is it that this is not clear and evident to everybody? You know, why, why is it that there are men and women who embark on life courses that are almost inevitably going to make them miserable by the time they're 35 or 37. Why? You know, why waste 15 or 20 years of your life? And the answer is because we change, we can change our feelings by our actions. That's so important. I'm going to say it not once more, but two more times. We can change our feelings by our actions. Do you hear me? We can change our feelings by our actions. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's somebody at your work, a real jerk. Somebody makes you really annoyed, just bothers you all the time. You've got several choices. You can try and get them fired. Usually not going to work very well. Um, you can quit yourself. Trouble with that is that very often when you go and get another job, there's another jerk there waiting for you. So the third choice is try and change the jerk. Impossible. You're only going to make him a bigger jerk and you're going to make him more annoying and you're going to make him more annoyed. So, you know, you can't get him fired. No point in changing work yourself. You're not going to be able to change him. And that leaves the fourth and final choice. 
You can change yourself. What are you talking about? Well, let's imagine you could take a tablet which stops him bothering you. Now, obviously, you're not changing him. You're taking the tablet. But imagine you took this magical Lappin tablet, and from then onwards, you just smiled indulgently at everything this jerk did because it just stopped bothering you. Wouldn't you agree that that's just about as good as getting rid of him? But you see, that you can do. You can change the way you feel about him. How? Here's the rule. Start behaving toward him the way you would behave toward him naturally if you already felt about him the way you wished you felt about him. Now, was that too complicated? You could just replay it. Or you could repeat it, Lappin. Fine. If you don't like the way you feel about somebody, start behaving toward them the way you would naturally behave if you already felt about them the way you wished you felt about them. Having a fight with your wife? Don't start thinking of all the clever things that you can come back with by argument. Just bring a beautiful bunch of flowers, hug her in your arms, look her in the eyes and tell her you really are sorry. You're sorry for making her unhappy. Are you really? I don't know, maybe not. Do you really feel like giving her roses? No, you're annoyed at her. But a strange thing is going to happen. You're going to stop feeling annoyed. And your feelings of warmth and affection and even love will be rekindled. In other words, act lovingly towards somebody, which is acting toward them the way you wished you naturally felt, and you will find that your feelings start falling into line. You know what you do with this jerk at work? Bring him a coffee next time you go and get a coffee. The next day, um, give him a, uh, a little gift, uh, a little, um, I don't know, whatever, you know. And you're going to baffle him at first, but you are going to start feeling differently toward him. And you're even going to say to yourself, you know what's really funny is he's much less of a jerk. No, he isn't. He's still a, still a jerk. It's not bothering you anymore. That's the key. If there's anything I'm telling you in today's show that really needs to be understood and remembered and absorbed and applied in your life, it's this. You can change your feelings by your actions. So now you should be able to understand, for instance, uh, men who make themselves cry lose testosterone. We get that. Because the changes are actually not only psychological, but also physiological. Yes, that's right. You can actually change aspects of your physiology by the way you act. It's true. Make yourself act courageously and honorably, and you actually start becoming a more courageous and honorable man. Make yourself more surrendering to your husband. Make yourself more yielding. Make yourself a little bit more accepting. And guess what? You'll start feeling more feminine, let alone the magic it'll work on your husband. We can change ourselves by our actions.
men's bodies actually lose testosterone when they cry. We know this because there was a a period where uh, men were doing crying therapy. (laughs) I I mean, I laugh at it. It's sad, but it's true. Um, And interestingly enough, it it eventually died an overdue death because uh, they saw what it was doing to the men's testosterone. Their masculinity was being damaged (laughs) by the crying. Uh, We also know that women who engage in heavy physical exertion lose fertility and stop their monthly cycles. That's right. Shocking, isn't it? The extent to which we can change ourselves, not just emotionally, not just mentally, not just psychologically, but physiologically. Um, Now I'll tell you something that will really bother you. But um, it's, uh, it's my job, I think, to... Um, tell you the truth rather than to massage you with warm butter. And this, I promise you, is not massaging you with warm butter at all. Men who start sharing intimacy with other men, and you know what I'm talking about, undergo spiritual, emotional, psychological, and even some neurophysiological changes which makes them subsequently increasingly drawn to this behavior. Hear what I'm saying? Hear it carefully. Men who start sharing intimacy with other men undergo spiritual and emotional and psychological and even some neurophysiological changes, which make them increasingly drawn to this behavior. Conversely, men who are drawn to other men, who stop, well, you know what, I'm going to leave you to figure out the rest of that. Um, Men who indulge in alcohol gradually become increasingly drawn to alcohol and their bodies and their minds undergo changes. There was a medical study which showed that alcoholics actually have a measurable difference in their brains. And so they immediately jumped to a, an evolutionary biological explanation, which was wrong. They said, see, men have a predisposition to alcoholism. Certain men have a predisposition to alcoholism, and you can see it in their brains. And the truth is nothing like that. The truth is through an extensive alcoholic period, their brains underwent measurable change. That's what happened. Women who hold and touch and smell babies experience measurable physiological surges of hormones. All a woman has to do is hold and touch and smell a little baby and their bodies start going crazy with hormones, dopamine, oxytocin. We can influence how we feel by certain actions. Please remember that and use it because if you don't like the way you feel about something, start acting the way you would if you already felt that way. For instance, um, you know, the old expression, whistle past the graveyard. What that means is you're scared walking past the graveyard at night so what do you do? Whistle and laugh and, and walk with a jaunty stride. 
you actually start feeling less fearful. That's, that's where that old expression comes from. So a young man who rejects family or rejects being serious about his finances and he rejects marriage and children, he will start feeling that he's enjoying himself because your thoughts and feelings will fall into action with your, fall into synchronization with your behavior. But inevitably for most men, in bitterness, they realize too late that they wasted time. Young women are deliriously excited to be guided into the workplace in their 20s. And as they waste their years of maximum beauty and fertility at a job, which is sold to them as a career, they feel okay other than occasional little nagging moments. But by and large, it's not until baby hunger starts gnawing away to the extent it can no longer be ignored when they hit 37 or 38, and then all of a sudden, they realize it just might be too late. And that is why it is that the path that should be so clear to a 23-year-old is so often not. Because, happy warriors, we really are not all that different from one another. Yes, we each have a unique soul. That's true. But we all basically need the same things for a happy and fulfilling life. And don't be misled by the lies that tell you you can have it all. And don't be misled by the lies that tell you there are a lot of different ways of putting the clock back together, because they're not. There are not a lot of different ways to live a happy and fulfilling life. They really aren't. And so you happy warriors... Spread the word. If you know, and I'm sure you do, you should, you know young people you're connected with, help them. Help them escape the tyranny of the lies and the indoctrination that liberalism is thrusting at them. Help them discover the power of the five F's. You'll be doing them a favor that they will thank you for, for always. I want to wish each and every one of you, happy warriors, a wonderful week of exciting progress. That in a week's time from now, you look back and you say, I really achieved much this week. Achieving much, please, with your families, your finances, your fitness, your friendship, and your faith. Have a great week. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.